Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Hello, and welcome to ACRAC. I'm Jed Wolpaw, and today we're going to talk about the basic setup of the operating room in terms of the medications you set up when you're first setting up your case in the morning. There are brand new CA1s all over the country who are now four days into their anesthesia training, and I've had the pleasure of working with two of them here at Hopkins. And I realized that when you're just starting out, some of the things you really want to know, some of the things you're really trying to internalize are the very simple ones. What medications do I set up and how do I remember them and what doses do I usually give for these and how do I calculate those doses? And I thought it might be useful to do a podcast just on that so that those of you out there who are just getting started can listen to this and reinforce some of those things that your attendings are teaching you in your first few days. For those of you who are more senior residents listening to this, I would love it if you would leave comments and let us know, do you do things this way? Do you do them differently? Have you discovered things over the year two or three years of training that you'd like to share with those who are just getting started? I remember thinking when I was a first-year resident, especially in those first few weeks, that I would love to spend some time with a senior resident. I mean, it was good uh, to learn from attendings, and as most programs are, I think we were either one-on-one or Hopkins is two-on-one with an attending, but... I wished I could just just watch a few days even of a senior resident, just pick their brain, see what they do, what tips and tricks they had learned because they're so close to it. And so if any of you senior residents out there, I know you're reviewing for boards that are coming up at the end of this month, especially those of you at least who have just graduated. But if you, if you just have some thoughts on this, I think it'd be really useful for the CA1s who are getting started and really trying to figure out the best way to approach this before the end of July when they're going to have to be out there on their own doing it. Before we get started, let me remind everyone to go to the website, ACRAC.com, that's A-C-C-R-A-C.com, where you can sign up for our mailing list, as well as leave comments on any of the podcasts, and you can listen to and download the podcast directly from there. If you have any questions or comments for me, you're welcome to leave them at the website or email me at ACRAC at ACRAC.com or ACRACpodcast at gmail.com. If you've been listening to the recent episodes, you've heard me talking about Missing Microbes, a fantastic book by Martin Blazer about the effect that eradicating a lot of the normal gut flora over the past 50 years or so since we invented antibiotics has had on us and our development. Uh, It's fascinating. I finally finished it, and I can't recommend it more highly. I think for anyone in or out of medicine, it'll really open your eyes to some things you don't normally think about. He ends by saying that he thinks it's possible that 10, 20 years down the road, doctors prescribing antibiotics for patients, at least outpatients, may have to get informed consent. Can you imagine doctors saying to patients, you may need an antibiotic, but you need to sign this form because of all these risks, things like if we're talking about for your kid, that giving them a course of antibiotics may increase their risk of autism, asthma, Crohn's disease, ulcerative colitis, and all kinds of things that you wouldn't want your kid to have. I think it's fascinating to think about whether he's right or not. Time will tell, but I definitely recommend reading the book. 
All right. Let's talk about the basic med setup. And let me explain what I mean by the basic med setup. There are a ton of ways to set up medications for a case. And obviously, it's going to depend on what case you're doing and the details of the patient's comorbidities. But that said, you have to start somewhere. And so I think for CA1s who are just getting started, it helps to learn the basic, the most common setup. And in my experience at two institutions, this is pretty much the most common setup. So I think this is a good place to start. And then I'll mention as we go through some places that you can modify. Actually, I think I'll go through without any modifications so you can hear just the basic. And then I'll come back and I'll give you some comments on things I think you can alter that are interesting, fun things to try once you get this basic setup down. As I said, if you're a senior resident or an attending, listen to this, and you disagree or you think there is a better way, a better basic setup, please feel free to comment. I'd love to hear it, and I'm sure everyone else would too. All right, let's start with pre-medication. The basic Pre-medication is just going to be Versed, midazolam. And what you're going to pull up is one 2-milligram vial. Now, almost always this is going to be a 1-milligram per ml vial with 2 milligrams in it. So it's going to have 2 cc's in the vial. Personally, I try to avoid this in anyone over 60 and definitely in anyone of any age with any pre-existing cognitive impairment. But that said, for anyone who doesn't meet those two things, anyone under 60 with normal cognition, I would consider it. Uh, If they seem like they're completely calm, they're not anxious, they're not nervous, and they don't need it, then you may not need to do it. But if you are going to use a pre-medication, Versed is the most common, and it can give a nice anxiolysis to people who may need a little bit or who really don't want to remember going back to the operating room. I would recommend telling them that they may not remember so that they're not disturbed later by their lack of memory after they get the Versed. Let's move on to induction. For induction, again, the most common three medications you're going to use for induction are lidocaine, usually 2% lidocaine, and you're going to use 5 cc's of that or about 100 milligrams unless you have a patient who's particularly small, in which case you might cut that down. But really anyone 70 kilograms or above, you can give 100 milligrams of lidocaine. And you're going to have some fentanyl. Usually you'll pull up one 5 cc vial. That's 50 micrograms per ml. So you'll pull up one vial that has 250 micrograms in it. And then you will uh, pull up propofol. Propofol being by far the most common induction medication. And usually we'll pull up one 50 milliliter vial. And that's 10 milligrams per ml. So that's got 500 milligrams in the vial. And depending on the sizes of syringe that you have commonly in your drawer, at Hopkins we've got 20cc syringes and 10cc syringes. So we will pull up two 20cc syringes and one 10cc syringe of propofol. Now we'll come back in a minute and talk about dosing. But first let's just get through the setup itself, what you're going to pull up. So moving on to neuromuscular blockade. Where I trained at UCSF, we almost always used rocuronium. At Hopkins, we almost exclusively use vecuronium. So either one is fine. You, uh, for vecuronium, will usually pull up one 10-milligram vial. It comes as a powder. You mix 10 cc's of saline in that powder and pull it back up. So you have 10 cc's with 10 milligrams of vecuronium. Therefore, it's one milligram per ml. 
If you're pulling up rock uranium, it comes already in liquid form in usually five milliliter vials with 50 milligrams per vial, so 10 milligrams per ml. And usually we'll pull up one of these vials. If you have a bigger patient, you may want to pull up two. If you have a patient with renal failure, then instead of vecuronium or rock uranium, you will probably want to pull up cisatricurium, also known as Nimbex, and that will come in 5 cc vials, that is 2 milligrams per ml, and you can pull up 1 or 2 vials, so 5 or 10 milliliters of cisatricurium. You're also always going to want to have some vasoactive medications ready. The first and arguably the most commonly used is phenylephrine. Phenylephrine Many places have pre-prepared syringes, so you will have the usual dosage of 100 micrograms per ml, and you can pull up one or two syringes with 10 cc's of this, so you've got 10 cc's of 100 micrograms per cc, so it's 1,000 mics or one milligram in a syringe. If you have to mix it up on your own, if your pharmacy doesn't provide you with pre-prepared syringes, you can take one vial, which usually has 10 milligrams, that's 10,000 micrograms of phenylephrine, and put it in a 100 milliliter bag of normal saline, and that will give you a bag with 100 cc's in it that is 100 mics per ml. So that same concentration, you can then pull up one or two syringes with 10 mls per syringe. Another medication you're going to want to have in terms of vasoactives is ephedrine. Again, many places will have pre-prepared syringes, and these will usually have ephedrine at 5 milligrams per ml, and that's 10 mls in a syringe. You can grab one or two of those. If you have to mix it up yourself, it usually comes in a vial that is 50 milligrams. So if you dilute that into a 10 cc syringe, you will then have 5 milligrams per ml. I also highly recommend, for every case, making yourself a bag of what we refer to as baby epinephrine baby dose epinephrine. And what you do to make this is you take your standard one milligram vial of epinephrine, which is usually one milligram in one ml, and you inject it into a 100 ml bag of normal saline. And that gives you 10 micrograms per ml concentration of epinephrine. And then pull up one syringe full, so 10 mls of that epinephrine into a syringe. Make sure you label it as 10 micrograms per ml, so there's no confusion since epinephrine can be given in a variety of concentrations, especially during codes where you give an entire milligram. Now, some people may say, you've just talked about three medications to bring blood pressure up. What about something to bring it down? Nitroglycerin, nitroprusside, nicartapine. But I think when we're talking about the basic setup, you're going to have propofol. Propofol is going to bring your pressure down acutely if you need to. And so I'm not going to complicate it by getting into antihypertensives right now. You're going to want to pull up antibiotics for your case. I do recommend doing this during your setup and not waiting until you are ready to give the antibiotic because sometimes the timeout is going to happen right before incision and you'd rather not have to delay incision so that you can go pull out your antibiotic from the Pyxis. So our most common antibiotic that we give is going to be cefazolin. And so for a general case other than abdominal cases, uh, we will pull up cefazolin. At Hopkins, for uh, abdominal cases, we use both uh, cefazolin, also known as ANCEF, and flagyl, metronidazole. But 
if patients are allergic to penicillin, then discuss with the surgeons. You may use vancomycin or clindamycin instead. In general, I highly recommend trying to touch base with the surgeons before the timeout. That may be in pre-op. It may be the night before. I always try to reach out to the surgical attending the night before the surgery so that I can touch base about anything that may come up the next day. If you at least can get a hold of the resident or fellow or attending in pre-op and just check with them about the antibiotic, then you can make sure you have it pulled up. Finally, I do recommend while you're in the Pixis, while you're pulling things up, grab the things that you're going to want to have for the end of the case so that you don't forget them and so you're not scrambling to get them at the end. And usually this is going to be reversal for your neuromuscular blockade. So that's glycopyrrolate and neostigmine. The neostigmine usually comes in a 5 milligram pre-prepared syringe or you may have to draw it up from a vial and there's a variety of quantities in vials, but it's almost always going to be one milligram per ml, and you're going to want to draw up five milligrams, so five cc's. Glycopyrrolate may come in a pre-filled syringe that has one milligram, which is also five cc's, five mls, or if you're pulling it up yourself, it often comes in one or two ml vials. The concentration is, as far as I know, always 0.2 milligrams per ml, and you're going to want to pull up and this is debatable. We'll talk about this more in a minute, but probably somewhere in the neighborhood of three and a half to five mLs, which is going to be 0.7 to one milligrams of glycopyrrolate. And then you can pull up your Zofran or Ondansetron and one or two four milligram vials. It's usually two milligrams per mL. So each vial has two mLs in it. You're going to want to pull up a total of either four or eight milligrams, depending on what you want to give. I almost always give eight milligrams at the end of a case. All right, now let's go back and talk about dosing. So for Versed, for adults, you're almost always going to give one or two milligrams. There's not a whole lot of weight calculation. I believe that for pediatrics, it's often 0.1, 0.1 milligrams per kilogram if you're giving it IV up to a certain maximum, but I don't do pediatrics. And so I don't want you to take my advice on that. I'll let our pediatrics folks who may be listening, uh, feel free to comment on the exact dosing for adults. If you're giving it for pre-medication, one or two milligrams is going to be plenty. And again, that's pretty much regardless of weight for your induction meds. Again, we talked about lidocaine as being pretty much, you can give hundred milligrams to almost any adult patient, let's say any adult patient over 60 or 70 kilograms. If you start getting below 60 kilograms, you can start cutting it down. But really anyone over 40 kilograms, you're not going to be anywhere near toxic dosing by giving 100 milligrams. There are two ways to think about the lidocaine. Many people give it right with or even mixed with or right before they give propofol as a way to try to attenuate the stinging that propofol can cause in the IV site. I don't find this to be that effective, and I use it a different way, which is that if you give lidocaine a few minutes before intubation, it can help to attenuate the hyper-responsiveness, the sympathetic response to intubation to direct laryngoscopy, and so I try to give it fairly early on for that reason. Fentanyl Again, 50 micrograms per ml. In reality, most people are going to give something like 100 or 150 mics of fentanyl, arguably to attenuate the response to intubation, just like the lidocaine. However, to have this be effective, 
the data would suggest that you actually need to give higher dosing, really up to even five mics per kilo, and give it significantly before three to five minutes before intubation. This almost never happens. So you may argue that we don't really, we're not accomplishing what we want to be accomplishing with this. That said, certainly it's synergistic with the other induction medications that we give, and many people use fentanyl, so I'm including it as part of the basic setup. The dosing should be based, if you want to do it by weight, on lean body weight. And that's true of all opiates. You want to dose them based on lean body weight. What is lean body weight? Well, there's total body weight, which is obviously just the total body weight of the person. There's ideal body weight, which just takes into account height and gender. And then there's lean body weight, which is somewhere in between. It takes into account height, gender, and weight. And so you can think of it as if you think of what the ideal body weight would be, so someone of a certain height, if they were totally not overweight, what would their ideal body weight be? You can calculate that. There's calculators online. You have to look at their actual body weight. It's somewhere in between. In reality, we're not usually doing these calculations in the OR. We're just sort of saying we're going to give something that seems reasonable based on a person of a certain age, and we're not going to base it on total body weight for someone who's obese. So most people are going to get one to two mics, micrograms per kilogram. So you can imagine an 80 kilogram patient might get somewhere in the neighborhood of 100 to 150 micrograms. Again, someone who is 200 kilograms is not going to get 400 micrograms of fentanyl just because they weigh 200 kilograms because we know that we're actually dosing this based on lean body weight and their lean body weight is not going to be the same as their total body weight. It's going to be significantly less. Propofol is an interesting one because it's going to be dosed differently based on how you're using it. For the induction of anesthesia, propofol should be dosed based on lean body weight. But for maintenance of anesthesia, if you're running a propofol drip, it should be based on total body weight. And the way to remember this is to just think about the fact that when you're giving a bolus, you can use lean body weight because it's not going to distribute in the time you want it to act right away through all the soft tissue and adipose tissue. But when you're running it as a drip over time, it will seep into the soft tissue. And the more soft tissue, the more area the patient has, the greater the volume of distribution the patient has, the more it will require. So you need to dose it based on total body weight if you're running it as a drip where it can seep out into the patient. When you're just giving it as a bolus for induction, you can think of it as not having time to redistribute to the rest of the body and you get that immediate effect. You just dose it based on lean body weight. Let's move on to your neuromuscular blockers. Now, I didn't mention succinylcholine before, and certainly succinylcholine can be part of an induction and can be your induction neuromuscular blocker. But I think more commonly in the operating room, because we often are doing cases where we're going to want neuromuscular blockade for the duration of the case, we are going to default to using rocuronium or vecuronium or in renal failure, cisatricurium. That said, it's certainly perfectly reasonable to consider succinylcholine. Interestingly, succinylcholine is the only neuromuscular blocker that should be based on, should be dosed based on total body weight. The rest of the neuromuscular blockers, the non-depolarizers, including rocuronium and vecuronium, should be based on ideal body weight. So this is where you're actually not taking into account the weight of the patient at all, just their height and gender, 
to find out their ideal body weight. This is the same weight, ideal body weight, that we use when calculating the correct tidal volume for patients. This started with patients with ARDS, where the big trial in 2000, the ARDSNET trial showed that 6 cc's per kilo of ideal body weight had a huge improvement in mortality in patients with ARDS. But in subsequent studies, we've seen that for actually all comers, healthy patients in the operating room do better with lower tidal volumes based on their ideal body weight. So that's the calculation you can look up. Just Google ideal body weight and you can uh, figure out based on your patient's gender and height what their ideal body weight is, and that's the dosing you're going to use. Rocuronium induction dosing is 0.6 milligrams per kilogram. Vecuronium is 0.1 to 0.12 milligrams per kilogram. And so what does that come out to be? In reality, we do a lot of dosing based on what's actually in the vial, and so almost everyone is just going to get one 50 milligram vial of rocuronium because that's a vial. And for anyone who's 80, 90, 100 kilos, it's pretty close to 0.6 milligrams per kilogram. For vecuronium, one vial is 10 milligrams. Many people are just going to get a 10 milligram dose. And again, that's not far off for the dosing for the patients that we see. Cisetricurium is the same dosing as vecuronium in terms of uh, dosing by weight, so 0.1 to 0.12 milligrams per kilogram. And we use it in patients with renal failure because it has this fascinating property where it's degraded by Hoffman elimination, which means, in essence, it just falls apart on its own. It doesn't require any organ, no liver, no kidney. It just falls apart. And so in patients with renal failure, it will not have a prolonged duration of action where vecuronium and rocuronium will. And that's why we're going to use cisatricurium. For your vasoactives, we're not really dosing by weight for push dosing of these. So phenylephrine, again, the most common. I personally will give one to two cc's, that's 100 to 200 micrograms of phenylephrine right along with my propofol for everyone except young, totally healthy patients. Any older patient, anyone who's frail, anyone with a lot of comorbidities, when I induce with propofol, I just give phenylephrine right along with it. And again, that's 100 to 200 mics. If you're pushing it to treat hypotension, again, one to two cc's is your most common dosage. Ephedrine, you might go to if a patient is hypotensive and bradycardic because it will increase heart rate where phenylephrine will either not do anything to the heart rate or sometimes even bring it down. Ephedrine dosing is usually one to two cc's as well, which is going to be five to 10 milligrams. I'd say the most common is probably to go ahead and give 10 milligrams. Epinephrine, remember we've diluted it to 10 micrograms per ml. This is really going to be more of a rescue medication. So if the people are not responding to phenylephrine or ephedrine, or if someone is profoundly hypotensive and you're worried they may actually lose their pulse, but they haven't yet, you may want to go straight to the epinephrine and you can give one, two, three cc's at a time, 10, 20, 30 micrograms, and you'll see a fairly profound response. Antibiotics are going to be dosed based on your uh, institution's protocol, so I'm not going to get into the dosing there. And lastly, reversals. So you will learn, I learned when I was a CA1, and I think most people are taught, you're going to give neostigmine 5 milligrams and glycopyrrolate the same number of cc's, so 5 cc's, which is 1 milligram. And I disagree. I think that the correct dosing for neostigmine is 
70 micrograms per kilogram. That's what you'll find in the textbook, 70 micrograms per kilogram. So you can do the math for anyone who's 70 kilograms or more, 70 times 70 is 4,900 mics, which is 5 milligrams or 4.9 milligrams. So anyone who's 70 kilos or more is going to get 5 milligrams of neostigmine as a full dose reversal. And anyone who is less than 70 kilograms, you'll have to do the math. So someone who's 60 kilos is going to get about 4 milligrams as a max dose. And by the way, the maximum dose of neostigmine is 5 milligrams. So even if someone weighs 200 kilograms, they're still not going to get more than 5 milligrams of neostigmine. Now, the correct dosing of glycopyrrolate is not quite the same one-to-one ratio that people are taught. You can do that. You can give 5 milligrams of neostigmine and 5 cc's, which is 1 milligram of glycopyrrolate, but you will see tachycardia. You'll see your patient get significantly tachycardic from that. If you cut down that dose, if you give about 3.5 to 4 cc's, which is 0.7 to 0.8 milligrams, you'll see a much more hemodynamically stable response without a lot of tachycardia. So that dosing by weight is going to be about 0.01 milligrams per kilogram or 10 micrograms per kilogram. So for a 70-kilo patient, that would be 700 mics or 0.7 milligrams. If a patient has full recovery, and by that I don't mean they just barely got four twitches back. I mean if a patient has had no neuromuscular blockade for three or four hours, they have four strong twitches, tetanus with no fade, you don't want to give them a full dose of reversal because you can paradoxically cause weakness by giving them too much. On the flip side, you don't want to give none because even three or four hours after having received a non-depolarizing neuromuscular blocker like rocuronium or vecuronium, patients can still have increased respiratory complications in the PACU if they don't get any reversal. So for someone who fits that bill, they've had much recovery. They've got, as far as you can tell, full twitches back, not just four count, but also four strong twitches with no fade, then you can cut the dose about in half and give about two and a half or three milligrams of neostigmine and then equivalently not the exact same. If you give three of neostigmine, not three cc's, which would be 0.6 of glycopyrrolate, but maybe two cc's, which would be 0.4 milligrams of glycopyrrolate. And that'll be a nice hemodynamically stable dose. If someone has just got two or three or even just barely four twitches back, then you're going to give the full dose, which is the 70 mics per kilo of neostigmine and the 0.01 or 10 mics per kilo of glycopyrrolate. All right. So that's it for basic med dosing. I'm going to throw in a couple of interesting thoughts that you can start considering after you get this basic setup down. One is with the fentanyl for induction. I mentioned when I was talking about it that fentanyl is often given as a way to try to attenuate the sympathetic response to intubation. But it's not really a great medicine for that. First of all, we don't give enough. We don't give it far enough in advance. And also, if you give a fair amount of fentanyl, it may help you with induction, but then you're going to be chasing hypotension when there's no stimulation after induction and before incision. And you don't really need a painkiller for intubation. Intubation is not painful the way a surgical incision is painful. It is sympathetically stimulating, but it's not painful. And so a better drug, I would argue, is Esmolol. You can use Esmolol instead of fentanyl as a 
way to attenuate the sympathetic response to intubation, and you won't be chasing it after intubation during that period where there's not a lot of stimulation. You will see you'll be more hemodynamically stable. You won't be chasing hypotension. So try that, and you can give somewhere in the neighborhood of 0.3 to 0.5 milligrams per kilogram. Uh, obviously, take into account the heart rate. You're not going to want to give Esmolol to a patient with a heart rate of 40, but a patient with a normal heart rate, 70, 80, you can give 30, 40, 50 milligrams of Esmolol right before intubation, and you'll see it will attenuate that tachycardic response, and you won't be chasing hypotension afterwards. Then you can give fentanyl right before incision to treat what will obviously then be significant pain-causing stimulus as opposed to just intubation, which is not painful. Another interesting thing to think about in terms of pre-medication is if you have someone who you're worried about, they're a little older, they've got some dementia, and you don't want to give them midazolam, but they're incredibly anxious and you do want to try to attenuate that anxiety, you can consider using a little bit of propofol. It actually works really well and doesn't carry that risk of causing postoperative delirium. So one cc, two cc's of propofol in pre-op can actually make a patient not anxious, can really provide some anxiolysis without causing apnea and without causing any significant hypotension. You can consider trying that if your uh, attending is willing to let you go ahead and do that. If you're a CA1, I wouldn't do it without talking to your attending because it is a little atypical, but it can be an interesting thing to try. And then the last thing I'll say is for induction, obviously propofol is not the only option. I am a big fan in the ICU of inducing with ketamine. I think it's got some real advantages, both hemodynamically and in terms of duration of action. Atomidate is another drug that is often used for hemodynamic stability, though it has the downside of causing adrenal suppression. You can intubate with just a lot of fentanyl and Versed, which in some circles is known as a cardiac induction. You can do an inhaled induction with no IV medicines at all. So there's a ton of ways to go about this. And as you move along in your training, you'll get exposed to a variety of them. And what you want to do is decide what your own style is going to be once you're done and you're out there practicing on your own. Let me give you a summary of the way to dose these medications. So succinylcholine and a propofol drip should be dosed based on total body weight. Opioids and a propofol induction bolus should be dosed based on lean body weight, and remember that takes into account a patient's height, weight, and gender. And non-depolarizing neuromuscular blockers like rocuronium, vecuronium, and cisetricurium should be dosed based on ideal body weight, which only takes into account a patient's height and gender. I will post along with this podcast a Microsoft Word document that summarizes the different medications, how much I would recommend pulling up, and what the basic dosing uh, for each one is, including about how much to give and whether to dose it based on total, lean, or ideal body weight. And please remember, these are just recommendations you need to take into account your individual patient, what their comorbidities may be, and always discuss this with your attending before giving any dosing if you're a new resident. All right, that's it. Remember, this is just a basic, basic introduction to what I think is the most common setup in terms of medications in the operating room. Please feel free if you disagree, if you have other ideas, if you do it differently, if you think CA1 starting out should be learning it differently, 
leave comments on the website so that everyone can read them and learn from your input as well. Remember, the website is ACRAC.com. That's A-C-C-R-A-C.com. You can leave comments there. You can email me at ACRAC at ACRAC.com or ACRACpodcast at gmail.com. To all the new CA1s out there, good luck. CA1 first couple of weeks, first month is an exhausting time. You're getting bombarded by new stuff. It's stressful. It's hard. It's tiring. You are with an attending one-on-one, and yet you're still exhausted. By the end of the day, you're just ready to pass out. I hope everyone knows that that's normal. Everyone is feeling that. All of us attendings felt that when we were in your shoes. It's completely fine to feel that way. You're not doing anything wrong if you feel exhausted and stressed. I hope you have someone or a group of people who you can share those feelings with. Just know it will get better. You will get more confident. One day you'll wake up and realize that you feel pretty good handling things, even crises in the OR. And believe me, by the time you graduate in three years, you will be an excellent anesthesiologist. All right, that's it for today. For the ACRAC podcast, I'm Jed Wolpaw. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued. Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com.